Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following program has some offensive language. Though none of us would be here without the verb deployed, it's thought by many better not to hear the verb deployed. It's Tuesday, June 28th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Cassidy Hutchinson, 25, graduate of Christopher Newport University, was the idealistic staffer, dutiful, awed by the importance of her job, constantly aware of the privilege. She was Mark Meadows' Hope Hicks, a pretty young, tawny-haired amanuensis whose job was to never, ever let her boss down. And then her boss let her down because her boss's boss violated his oath to the Constitution. Hutchinson offered glimpse of the president's impetuousness and disregard on January 6th to the committee investigating the events of that date. Through conversations with Trump's head of Secret Service detail, Robert Engel, and Anthony Ornato, Secret Service official who was the White House Deputy Chief of Operations, Cassidy learned what the president had done in the presidential limousine upon being informed he could not, for safety's sake, join the crowd he inspired that was then amassing at the Capitol. president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. Toward his neck, she was told. Keep in mind that Hutchinson had testified that Trump had known the crowd was armed, but did not care, saying, they're not here to hurt me. Later that day, the walls ran red with ketchup after an angry president threw a plate of food, leaving Hutchinson to wipe up the mess. In a similar vein, Trump's senior staff pleaded with him to issue some sort of statement as the protesters wrecked the Capitol. Not because it was good or right or legally required or de minimis. No, Hutchinson testified, because the thinking, or at least The explanation to the president himself was not doing so would expose him to the 25th Amendment, which allows the cabinet and vice president to tell the Congress the president is incapable of fulfilling his duties. It does not get any more damning than that, except it did. Hutchinson recounted a conversation she witnessed between White House counsel Pat Cipollone, appalled at the hang Mike Pence sentiment being expressed by rioters, and her boss, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who exhibited less urgency. I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, 
Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. Hearsay, by the way, is permissible in many legal contexts. And if I had to bet if there were a criminal trial, that sort of thing or knowing about it, exposing the jury to what she heard would in fact be allowed, especially if either Pat Cipollone or Mark Meadows, thus far non-cooperators, sat for questions, even if they took the fifth. Other highlights of the lowlifes of the past administration, we got to see General Mike Flynn taking the fifth on the ever-so-baffling question, are the rioters morally or legally correct? The Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys were discussed by Rudy Giuliani. Hutchinson said they seemed to come up a lot whenever he was around. And we also learned through Hutchinson that Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani asked the president for pardons. The committee also teased the next batch of questions they'd look into, which indicated efforts to intimidate witnesses. Hutchinson herself was not afraid. Her testimony indicates the former president should be. On the show today, a spiel about the Democrats telling the other Democrats that they're not doing enough to make up for 50 years of Democrats insufficiently protecting abortion. But first, there is perhaps no better analyst of the costs of gun violence and the costs of combating that violence than Professor Patrick Sharkey. Sharkey, Princeton professor and author of Uneasy Peace, The Great Crime Decline, The Renewal of City Life, and The Next War on Violence, is up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. My next guest, Patrick Sharkey, in the last year and a half, has been invited on many panels and has done many interviews. And the question or topic is always something like, what explains the latest spike in crime or homicide? And the reason they turn to Patrick Sharkey is he's one of the experts in explaining what caused the last decrease in homicide 
or crime. And the thing about his explanation is we don't know plays a large part in all of this. He's still one of the smartest voices on these issues. Patrick Shark is a professor of sociology and public affairs at Princeton, and he is the author of Uneasy Peace, The Great Crime Decline, The Renewal of City Life, and The Next War on Violence. Professor Sharkey, welcome to The Gist. Thanks. Good to be with you. So it's not just that you don't know. As we've discussed in the past, the explanations, the causes are so interconnected. We can't just say a cause, but I don't want to Uh, mischaracterize any of your findings in general. It's just that it's not a neat, clear picture that X causes Y, right? Well, that's right. And and we tend to study violence. When I say we, I mean the the research community, uh, criminologists, sociologists, economists uh, tend to study violence in terms of single causes, single factors. Uh, And the reason we do that is not because that's how violence works, but because that's what we do well. We can identify the impact of specific factors, but we know that violence is a product of a complex dynamic system of interactions. And so our methods are not perfectly aligned with the phenomenon itself. And that creates this, I think, this this tension in how we put forth explanations of what's happening and the limits of, of what social science has told us. So right. that's kind of the, the starting point for the, the complexity. Yeah, and just as you don't know what causes, sociologically speaking, uh, the decrease in crime, it's probably hard to put one's finger on what are the policing techniques, for instance, that work. And also kind of, as you point out quite often, what does work really mean? Yeah, so, you know, to to take the other side of the argument, we we have made substantial progress in using experimental techniques and the methods of causal inference to say, hey, you know, if you increase the number of police officers on the street by X amount, you should get roughly this level of decline in violence. Uh, and then I think it's about 10, 10 cops equal one less murder. Yeah, that's right. Like that. That's right. That's kind of the consensus view. Now that can change. And there's a lot of variation in terms of what police officers are actually doing. Uh, but there has been progress in, for instance, you know, demonstrating that certain kinds of policing, what's called problem-oriented policing, where officers focus on a particular spot, work with residents to figure out what's causing the problems in that spot, and then uh, monitor it in, in, with greater effort and uh, person power. You know, that reduces violence. And so that's based on years of experimental work, people like Anthony Braga have been leaders in, in that kind of work. So we do have evidence uh, that, you know, points to specific things you can do to reduce violence. But the broader question of what makes communities vulnerable to violence, why is violence rising or falling? How, why is there this explosion of violence like we saw in the summer of 2020? Those questions are much more difficult. And that's where you have to kind of piece together evidence from where you can get it and put it together to put forth explanations of these very complex phenomena. Well, to understand, for instance, the explosion of violence during and right after the right after the um, lockdowns of the pandemic, let's go to Durkheim, right? Is it pronounced anomi? The yeah, that's just right. feeling just the feeling of a social condition where order has disintegrated. And so Durkheim is writing in the 19th century, but it's still a good explanation for the 21st. I'm impressed that you brought Durkheim into this conversation. That's that's like I got first... Durkheim over here. I got Merton over here. We're ready to oh, go. Beautiful. 
beautiful. All right. All right. So, yeah, we're going up into the bookshelf here. So, yeah, I, I, I do think those ideas are salient here um, because they point to kind of the breakdown of norms, the breakdown of social cohesion, uh, the breakdown of social order. And my advisor in grad school, Robert Sampson, has done some of the best research here in pointing to uh ideas about what he calls collective efficacy, which is essentially a set of shared expectations for what is acceptable behavior uh, in a community and trust in your neighbors to come together. Uh, So if there's a group of unsupervised teens causing problems on the corner, uh, do people in the neighborhood come together and say, hey, that, you know, we're not going to allow that to go on. Those kind of norms of behavior play a huge role in explaining variation in violence. And it doesn't mean that other forces, other structural factors, broader dimensions of, of inequality are not important. It just means that this is the kind of intermediary process that helps explain a lot of variation in which communities go downhill, which communities start to see spikes in violence that uh, don't see a response that are kind of uh, allowed to happen and, and which don't. So it, it, it definitely draws a, a line between those theories of Durkheim and, and the kind of classic sociologists studying where social order comes from to what we saw happen in 2020 when norms broke down and social, social order broke down in cities all across the country. This seems like a kind of conservative view of things. What we need is community. What we need is order. What we need is uh, elders either looking out for kids or at least being invested on the kids in the corner. But yet, I don't think that your solution or your prescription for our current ills much overlap the most conservative thinkers in our society. Well, you got to step back and look at what creates the conditions for social order to break down. So when you have communities that have seen disinvestment for a long period of time, communities where poverty becomes concentrated and institutions in the neighborhood start to start to wither away. And by that, I mean, you know, everything from schools to uh, libraries to um, churches and, and religious congregations. When people start to retreat from those institutions, uh, that's when communities become vulnerable to violence. So it does take into account public policy. It does take into account structural disadvantage, concentrated poverty. But then, yeah, we take very seriously the, the idea that it's not like poverty causes violence it, itself. Uh, Poverty creates the conditions where social norms start to break down, where it's harder for people to come together, where institutions don't work. And that then leads to higher levels of violence. So let's take New York City, where uh, you lived for a long time, where I live. We both know a lot about it. Um, There was a couple of regimes of aggressive policing or, um, you know, policing using both statistical measurement, but then during Bloomberg, the stop and frisk era, and crime did come down. Crime came down a, down a lot. Uh, homicide came down a tremendous amount. This was going on throughout the United States that homicide was coming down, but it came down in New York faster and further. So is your contention that it was not necessarily the policing that brought the crime down, but somehow the social cohesion got more cohesive during that period? 
or I don't want to mischaracterize you. Uh, the question in a nutshell is, how do you explain the fact that homicide and crime came down so much at a time when policing seemed to be the major emphasis, but I don't know that social cohesion was the major emphasis? What happened in New York, and actually in lots of cities across the country, is a set of changes took place uh, beginning in the early 19, 1990s that I, I look at as as kind of a, a reclamation of public space. And so some of those are, you know, uh, conservatives like some of, some of those changes. There was enhanced policing, much more aggressive policing. They, uh, the NYPD went after uh, gang activity, relentlessly shut down open air drug markets, um, and then, you know, took on disorder in a very real way, meaning uh, the clean car program, you know, where the subway cars were, uh, uh, all graffiti was removed from subway cars. Like, you know, that that makes a difference. So, yeah, there were a set of changes, uh, those kinds of changes. But then there was also a mobilization that took place that gets a lot less attention where activists and community organizations came together and formed to take back parks, to march against violence, to provide services for addiction and and. Uh, homelessness. And so, you know, what I document in uh, my book and, and through this national uh, data collection effort is that that mobilization of community organizations played a causal role in reducing violence. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, placing value on, on, you know, when I, when I talk about what led to the crime drop, I'm not making a moral argument, you know, I'm making an empirical argument that this set of changes took place at the same time and together, uh, it just reshaped public space. Uh, but this set of forces led to a, a, a fundamental change in what public space looked like in New York that then led to the drop in violence. Um, now, you know, Mike, I will say that, so you can, you can point to the stop and frisk era and say, well, violence was, was falling under Bloomberg and, and it definitely was. But then you have to go further and say when, you know, so Bloomberg and Ray Kelly, the former uh, uh, commissioner of the NYPD, warned that, you know, if, if they end stop and frisk, then violence is going to skyrocket. So de Blasio comes into office, effectively ends stop and frisk. It went from 700,000 stops to, to somewhere between 10 and 20,000 stops. Uh, the jail population kept falling in the city, you know, the jail population, the decline of the jail population in New York gets no attention. It is one of the most dramatic changes uh, to have taken place. And New York City's jail population resembles Western Europe. It doesn't resemble the rest of the U.S. So as all these changes were taking place, as they ended stop and frisk, as the jail population continued to fall, uh, 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 summonses uh, continued to fall, Violence kept falling to record lows under de Blasio. You know, so if you if you kind of point to the Bloomberg and, and Giuliani administrations as examples of why we need these kinds of policies, you have to then go to de Blasio and say, well, he ended these policies, violence kept falling. So I was thinking about the stop and frisk regime when one year, 90% of the people stopped were innocent. Most years, it was something like 87 to 89%. However, because at the levels that the stops were being done, we're talking about, you know, picking up 
80,000, 60,000 people who were guilty of some infraction during those years. And I wondered last year as crime was spiking in my neighborhood and in my city, if that sort of aggressing policing effort wouldn't in fact uh, decrease crime and decrease homicide. So the way I think of it, you're not wrong in the sense that, you know, the the this kind of tactic is going to have different impacts at different times. And in the 80s and 90s, when a much larger share of New York City residents were carrying weapons, then stop and frisk probably had more uh, of an impact. Uh, yeah, than every year they'd get about 800 guns off the street and you do the math. I would think that that would lead to a couple hundred fewer shootings. Yeah, so I mean, I don't think there's great evidence behind that, but um, you know, it's plausible. Uh, what I what I would say is we're talking about stop and frisk versus no stop and frisk. And that's like the language of academics. That's how a lot of policymakers think about this stuff. You, you have to try at least. And, you know, this this is a little bit pie in the sky, I realize. But you have to try and think about alternative counterfactuals. Like, is it stop and frisk or nothing? Or is it stop and frisk versus trying to engage the the young people who have the highest risk of becoming involved in gun violence and provide them uh, with a set of services and and a set of institutions that actually work so you know again it's stop and frisk versus nothing uh, is is one counterfactual and that's you know in most cities that's a very realistic counterfactual what, what I try to push is think about alternative uh, counterfactuals and alternative ways to particularly to deal with the population that has the highest risk of picking up a gun. Well, I believe in a yes and philosophy with when it comes to policing. Let's try to see what works. I know that, uh, again, New York City, uh, Mayor Adams has hired a lot of violence interrupters to uh, be in the schools. I know this was tried, I think, to good success, at least in famous uh, articles and documentaries I watched and read about Boston. But what about overall? It's not like you cited the one program in Chicago. It's not like these are new or just being piloted now. We should have some body of evidence as to how much they work. Uh, What's it it showing? We have a very small body of evidence. Uh, So the evaluation, the initial evaluation of the program in Chicago is the first really rigorous evaluation of this kind of program done by the uh, crime lab in in Chicago. And the results are are, uh, interesting, but I would say not conclusive. There was uh, a decline in in some outcomes, like involvement with shootings and and homicides, Uh, but overall there was not the kind of decline that uh, they, they hoped for. Uh, in in this program. So I think there was enough evidence to say, hey, we need to to continue to study this and continue to tweak it to figure out how it can work better. Uh, but it definitely, you know, it, it, the original, and it is an experimental, it is a randomized controlled trial. Uh, there's enough positive evidence to to say this this is a promising strategy. Patrick Sharkey is the author of Uneasy Peace, The Great Crime Decline, The Renewal of City Life, and The Next War on Violence. He's professor of sociology and public affairs at Princeton. Not a professor, professor of sociology and public affairs. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. Good talking with you.
Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. And now the spiel. Abortion is no longer protected thanks to Republican-appointed Supreme Court justices. The laws in 21 states already ban or are about to ban abortions that were constitutionally protected a week ago. Of those 21 states, 21 have both houses of their legislatures controlled by Republicans. Republican judges, Republican state policies, popular with Republican voters, they are all widely decried on the left, but also lamented are Democrats themselves. Here was a young activist, Zoe Warren, quoted on MSNBC last Friday. So I received a text message from Joe Biden's campaign yesterday saying that the Supreme Court had overturned Roe versus Wade and that it was my responsibility to then rush $15 to the Democratic National Party. Um, and I thought that was absolutely outrageous because my rights should not be a fundraising point for them um, or a campaigning point. Uh, they have had multiple opportunities to codify Roe into law over the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they haven't done it. And if they're going to keep campaigning on this point, they should actually do something about it. Incessant fundraising opportunism is annoying, but is she in general right? There are many in agreement, including conservative professor Adam White speaking here on the Commentary Podcast. I think it's really interesting to see now in hindsight what Roe cost the left. They had all this time in which to legislate sensibly and moderately on abortion. But they didn't, they didn't have any political incentive to because in their eyes, Roe had solved this. We're seeing this at the state level, by the way, in the states, including progressive states, where they have on the books these long dormant pre-Roe restrictions on abortion. Uh, for example, in Wisconsin, right now, the governor has to decide what to do with this law that was on the books before Roe that, 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 that uh, prohibits abortion. And he's saying, well, I'll grant clemency to anybody who's prosecuted under this law. I think the sensible question to ask is, this is Wisconsin. Where were you for the past 50 years, state legislature, that you didn't just repeal this law that was still on the books? The answer is overwhelmingly in the hands of Republicans for the last 30 years. And before that, a repeal of the trigger law might have won, but would have been bizarre politics with Democratic majorities using political capital to champion an extremely controversial stance for a right that was already secured. And there's nothing to say that subsequent Republican-dominated eras wouldn't have undone whatever Democrats passed back then. And we're just talking about Wisconsin. That's the one state where a history of generally pro-abortion sentiment ever existed of the states that are about to ban abortion now. Blaming Democrats for not codifying Roe in Texas, Alabama, or Oklahoma might as well blame Democrats for not passing universal health care in those states or not changing the state flags to pictures of doves, daffodils, or Jimmy Carter. Federally, no veto-proof majority ever existed where there were 60 votes to codify Roe. Yes, during the Carter years, there were over 60 Democrats in the Senate, but many weren't pro-abortion. And if you're chastising Democrats for not codifying this ruling, as if it were cowardice or bureaucratic oversight, then ask yourself, before two days ago, where was the call to codify Obergefell? 
Well, as of today, Nancy Pelosi is advocating for a law to codify gay marriage. Will it pass the Senate? I don't know. But even that wasn't a thought until the Dobbs decision and the Thomas dissent. I mean, anti-miscegenation laws are still on the books in some states, though invalidated by Loving v. Virginia. This isn't a lack of will or foresight or bravery. It was either politically impossible or politically foolish, as in out of step with the rest of the electorate, at least the electorate before 2022. So that's the question of what wasn't done. On to the question of what can be done now. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez took to a bullhorn to advocate for the following policy during a rally in Union Square. Let's start with the babiest of the babiest of the baby steps. Open abortion clinics on federal lands in red states right now. Right now. Right now. Elizabeth Warren and others support her. This is the kind of brave, bold action that would run afoul of federal law and the Hyde Amendment. And even worse, adds Professor Leah Littman, speaking on the New Abnormal podcast, AOC and Warren's proposal would incautiously expose women who get abortions on federal land and the doctors who provide them to prosecution in the anti-abortion states the federal land surrounds. Well, people aren't going to go live on federal land after they have their abortion. They will leave and go home and return to their states. And I just am not confident that the Supreme Court would say states couldn't prosecute a resident, right, who obtained an abortion on federal land within the state. And so if you can't promise people that they will actually be safe then it seems like your legal solutions are not actually going to ensure safe and legal abortion. No one thinks the overturning of Roe is a worse development than Leah Lippman. She is a law professor, however, and she plainly sees a bad course of action as being worse than no course of action. But we need something done. This was the argument of Chris Hayes on MSNBC last night. Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, along with others in her party, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who we had on the program last week, among a bunch of others, right, have been on the front lines of the Democratic response to this decision, channeling the outrage, demanding that this time the response must be different. AOC, for her part, offered a number of practical um, solutions or concrete actions in the short term on Twitter, including expanding the number of seats in the Supreme Court, yes, but also increasing access to at-home abortion pills or attempting to repeal the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits federal funds for paying for abortions, expanding abortion clinics on native and federal land, which people have talked about doing. But again, you could argue about the specifics. Some of those there's not the votes for. Some of them might be bad on the policy merits. But the most important thing is to propose things, right? No, not right. It is not to propose things that won't work. It's to propose things that will, or even might. I take might. But things that will or might work are called, could be called solutions. Proposals that don't and have no chance are called wasted resources. They're not called hope. Repealing the Hyde Amendment, not going to happen. The federal lands proposal, you just heard, it's unworkable. Court packing, the public is so opposed to this in terms of polling. Right now, the Democrats, I don't know if they'll win the House, but they could retain the Senate in the midterms. I would think a court packing proposal would undo that. The FDA, they already allow mifepristone to be shipped everywhere in the United States. And the other drug that's used is the abortion pill. Attorney General Merritt Garland already has affirmed that no state can ban it being imported. 
States will try. Fighting that attempt will be something that Democrats are or will be doing. Democrats are upset and outraged and they need some action items. They're upset that James Clyburn used the word anticlimactic. They're upset that Nancy Pelosi read a poem. But Nancy Pelosi also read a statement about that poem exactly articulating their rage, their frustration, their need to do something. And Nancy Pelosi, even though she's of a different generation, has the mm, detriment of well understanding the laws of possibility, but the upside of knowing what can be done. Mostly young Democrats, leftist Democrats, are very frustrated that they're being told to go vote. And many of them, especially those with bullhorns and cable shows, are saying, not good enough. Except, that is the answer. That is the boring, non-urgent, we knew you were going to say it anyway, answer. But it is the answer. Democrats need control, real control, not a Senate tie in the whim of Joe Manchin control. Power can't be wielded unless it's grasped. And blaming the horrible position they're in on themselves is a common pattern for Democrats. It is a familiar outlet for fury, but in this case, the more frustrating explanation, the one that starts with a V, that's the correct one. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the GIST assistant producer and Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions and was once White House special counsel for Heinz Abatement Procedures. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the GIST. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>